Are y'all doing the pre-K? Pre Go with Miss Kara. Don't worry about it. It's all good, man. <laughs> Looks like it's not my fault. Well, man, thank you guys. Good morning, and thank you so much for the testimony today. Um, man, what, what wonderful. I, and I'll be honest with you, I'm looking at my watch right now. It's 1137, okay? And, but this is good. This is good. And I'm going to do, you know what's interesting is, I was struggling this week to write enough, okay? Which means my sermon, I felt like, was going to be short, Seems like God knew what he was doing. Maybe I didn't so much. I'm excited um, about, about what God's got for us today. And, and I'll be honest, it, it's going to be, it was hard for me to write and not just in, I don't have enough to say, because that's usually not an issue for me, but it's about saying the right things and addressing things in the correct way. I, I don't know about you guys, but there has been a consistent pattern in my life of, of times when God speaks. And it's not only during this time, but something about the activity of mowing grass puts me in the right mind frame to hear from the Lord. I don't know what it is. If it's, and it can be on a lawnmower or, you know, I used to help my dad a lot on the farm. I used to manage a farm. And so a lot of times you ride in tractor. And it, for me, that's kind of mindless work. Like literally the only thing I have to do is make sure that I go in a straight line and don't hit anything. Like that's not a complicated task. And, and so this week I'm mowing the grass and I'm thinking about this passage um, and, and God began to, to make me think about this whole series in a way that I hadn't thought about it before. And I think part of it was a podcast that I was listening to. Um, I've, and I've mentioned this one before. It's called No Dumb Questions. And these guys, it's a, a theologian kind of guy and a, and a little rocket science guy. And they're both believers. And they look at the world in different ways. And they have these really neat conversations. And the, the title of this podcast was, How Do You Know? Uh, or as my boss says it all the time, How Do They Know? How do it know? He says that all the time, just being silly. But it, it was talking about how we come to know the things that we know. And I'll, I'll tie that in a little bit later. But it made me think about what it means to have true faith. And, and I, have, I have said over and over again, the focus of our study in this book is to develop and understand what true faith is is. And I've repeated that each week in various ways because I don't want it to get repetitive and boring. But I want us to really understand the fact that true faith never stops growing, right? Our, our faith is intended. You know, Jesus talks about if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, and I don't know if you've ever paid attention to a mustard seed, but they're very small. But if we have just that much faith that we can move on, we can say to a mountain, get up and move and it will listen. And so the goal for all of us is for our faith, for our understanding of who God is, to continue to grow. And in thinking about James chapter 2, it occurred to me that there's another aspect of faith that we have not talked about yet. Today, James is going to get to pointing us in that direction. And actually, if, if you really go back and think about it, he's been kind of pointing us that way over the last three weeks, but I'm a little thick sometimes and I don't catch on. But not only does true faith continue to grow, Okay, pause, and I want you, as I say this next part of this, I want you to think about everything we just sang. But as, not only does true faith continue to grow, but it also always reveals itself. We talked a lot over the last three months about faith. But I, I began to ask myself again, as I'm having this new revelation about the fact that God's, as God is growing in us, as our faith is growing, that it's going to reveal itself naturally. And as I'm thinking about that, I think, okay, what... What is faith in its purest form? If you, if you just try to define that, what does it look like? And, and God's like, hey, well, you preached on that in Hebrews chapter 11. I was like, oh, yeah, let me go back and look at that. And so I did. And here's how we define that in January of this year, okay? We said that biblical faith is the certainty that something will happen 
not based only on our hope or hard work, but on the revelation of God's truth and character, okay? So, so what that means is, is that as we are growing in our understanding, as God is developing true faith in us, that faith becomes a foundation for even greater things. Like we all learned a lot this week about God's provision. And if I had asked you last week, do you have faith that God is your provider? You would have said yes. But now you know that in a more substantial way than you did before. So I'm listening to this podcast. And they're talking about how we learn things and where knowledge comes from. And they're talking about it from um, a very philosophical standpoint. The guy that's leading the conversation is the theologian guy. And he loves philosophy. He loves talking about the way our brain works. And they really identified two main things. There's some others that are kind of offshoots and they get really technical and I'm not smart enough to explain all that. But really there's two main ways that we learn things. Either someone teaches us or we learn it through life experience. And in reference to our faith, I would contend that our faith can be established or increased by somebody teaching us but the growth is minimal when compared to experiencing God's activity in our life for ourselves. No doubt we all grew this morning hearing those stories about God's provision. But I guarantee you the people who were in those experiences, who shared those experiences, have grown more than you have. I don't want to take away from the fact that we're all learning from something. I want to point out that our goal is for us to have our own personal experiences with God. The knowledge that comes through those kinds of experiences where God is working in our lives radically change our understanding of and our trust in God. One of the main points of that message in Hebrews chapter 11 was that it was time for us, this is what God said, it's time for us to put our faith into action. And I actually referenced James chapter 2 verse 14, which is the anchor for this section that we're about to study today. I went back and I read through that message and I was shocked. Literally, like, I went, whoa. When I read the next part of this, after that, this next part in that message, because I saw what the Holy Spirit has been working on in us since January, okay? I'm going to read this to you, and I literally just copied this out of one message and stuck it into here, and I want you to listen to the words in here. It says, um, it, in Hebrews, is what I was talking about, was written to remind them, listen to this, that true faith moves the person from belief to action, I had no idea I was going to title that next series, True Faith. We did a series in between these two, but God was already working. God is continuing to speak the same message to us. It's by allowing God to work in our lives that our faith is grown and that we have the faith that is going to reveal itself to the world as we're growing. As we discussed last week, we've all, both individually and corporately, been called to action. We have been called by Jesus as disciples to make more disciples. And I want all of us to realize that as our faith grows, it will be revealed to the world by virtue of itself. We don't have to get a publicist. We don't have to get somebody that's good at marketing to show the world our faith. As we are doing life with the people around us, as we are growing in our relationship with God, people are going to see that. There's going to be conversations that are going to happen. There's going to be questions that are asked, and people are going to say, how is it that God did this in your life? And you say, do you have a minute? Let's get a cup of coffee and let's talk through that. Let me say this in another way because I want to make sure we understand it. If you grow in faith as God works in your life, you cannot hide it. 
people are going to see that growth happening. Unless you live like in a bubble and don't talk to anybody ever. That would be the one scenario, okay? But think about the examples that, that the author of Hebrews gives us in Hebrews 11. He talks about Noah. Noah's faith changed the world around him, right? Noah built a boat, in case you forgot, saved all of creation and humanity. Because he had faith that what God said was going to happen actually happened. He walked in obedience to what God called him to do. People ridiculed him. They told him he was dumb. And he did it anyway. And he saved the earth. Because he listened. Abraham. Abraham's got lots of stories. Moses, same thing. These men heard God speak. They listened to what he said, and it changed the world around them. Consider some from the New Testament. Chapter 11 of Hebrews didn't mention this, but as I'm just thinking through this, riding the lawnmower, I think about Paul. The Paul, Paul who says, of Jews, I was the greatest. The guy who led the persecution of the church, he's walking down the road to, to Damascus. The Lord reveals himself and shows Paul the truth about who Jesus was, and it changed his life, and it changed the world. Peter, who denied Christ, who stands up and preaches the first message after the Holy Spirit comes, changed the world. James, the author of this book, the brother of Jesus, gave the rest of his life to share this message. All of these people changed the world around them, not by their own cunning, not by their power, not by their ability to speak, but by their obedience to what God told them to do. And as they obeyed, their faith grew. God directed, they obeyed, their faith increased, and they altered history. God's desire and intent for this world is that it would come to know him as he transforms you. I want you to think for a moment about what this world would look like if we had just a smidgen of the faith that these great people in the church had. Have you ever thought that God might want to use you to change the world? just like you use these other guys. If you were to go to James or Peter or Paul and say, yeah, but you're so much greater than me, you know what they would say? No, I'm not. I'm not. The thing that we all have in common is the fact that we need Jesus. The difference in my life and Paul's life is that Jesus had a, Paul had a greater amount of faith than I have right now. And that inspires me to want to grow. Not that I want to be Paul, but I want to be the best will that I can be. God created me for a purpose, and I want to figure out what that is. And I want you to figure out what that is for you. But here's the thing. In the same way that true faith reveals itself, the inverse of that is also true. The lack of true faith is also revealing. The world may or may not notice it when you're not growing, but you do. You know what it feels like when your spiritual life becomes stagnant. That can come from a lot of different, different areas, and I'm going to purposely not quantify that with examples because I don't want to make anybody walk out of here feeling guilty today. But I would be willing to bet that you know or have experienced that before. And as we're about to see, the lack of true faith is part of the problem that the church has had for centuries, and it's caused a lot of trouble. Before we get to chapter 2, we're going to look at, at verses 1 through 4 today, but before we do that, I want to go back to James chapter 1, verse 27. Because this is how he ended the last section. I think it sets us up well to read the next four verses. He says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The kind of religion that God desires to see is one that's focused on the needs of others. 
The type of religion that God's interested in is one that looks at Jesus and says, I want to be like that. In chapter 2, James goes on to describe what happens when we try to live our Christian life apart from growing faith. In the next chapter, he deals specifically with the results of a church that does let itself become stained by the world and how they treat people as a result of that. Look with me, first four verses, James chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? There's a couple of things I want to point out as we jump into this this morning. The first thing is that James is using a process called intertextuality, which is just a fancy way of saying that he is um, using the Old Testament, the written Torah, to help us understand the New Testament or the oral Torah as it's called. He's going to show us through the use of the Old Testament that Jesus, and through Jesus' teaching that there's no place for partiality in the church or in the kingdom of God. We'll see several passages in a moment that, that spell that out. The second thing is, is that verse 1 is the instruction and the following verses three through, or 2 through 4 are the illustration. And James is most likely using an example of something that happened in one of the churches that he's writing these letters to. The sad reality is that the same problem still exists in churches today. Our goal today, in the short time that we have left, is to understand what James means by favoritism, or as it's translated in other places as partiality. You'll hear me use both of those things today. And then make some personal and corporate applications of that. But to get to the application, we need to see this, this idea of not showing partiality is not one that James, has made, James made up. It's not in God's nature to show favoritism, to say that one person is better than another. So look at some verses with me. And these are verses and experiences that have shaped James's teachings. As he's writing this to these people. And remember, he's writing this to the early church. People that had, had been Jewish by faith, heard about Jesus, and chose to trust in him. And now they're trying to figure out what that looks like in everyday life. And so there's this habit. And remember, Jesus addressed this with Pharisees a whole lot about looking at the outward appearance of things and judging only based on that. So here's some, some scripture that would have shaped James's understanding of this. Leviticus 19.15, do not act unjustly when deciding a case. Do not be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich. Judge your neighbor fairly. Or Deuteronomy 1.17, do not show partiality when deciding a case. Listen to a small and great alike. Do not be intimidated by anyone for judgment belongs to God. Bring me any case too difficult for you, and I will hear it. Or Proverbs 24 through 23, or chapter 24, verse 23. These sayings also belong to the wise. It is not good to show partiality in judgment. Or John chapter 7, verse 24. Stop judging according to the outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. Or Acts 10, verse 34 through 35. Peter began to speak. Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That last one is where Peter is on the rooftop struggling with the idea of sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. And 
God, he has this vision of God bringing down the unclean animals in a sheet and saying, here, eat. And he says, I would never, I've never done that. And God says, what I call clean, do not call unclean. He's changing Peter's understanding of what it means to be a believer. We could go on and on, but I think you get the point. God does not show favoritism. Jesus didn't come and die for only one group of people. He died for all of us. And as followers of Christ who desire to be made more like him, we should adopt the same attitude. Look at verse 1 with me again. He says, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. If you go back and you look at that Greek word for favoritism or partiality, it says, it literally means don't receive the face. Okay? Don't receive the face. And that is a, a word that's made up by the New Testament writers. It only appears in a few places, but they made that word up in Greek to help them understand the Hebrew word, which talks specifically about receiving someone based only on their appearance. He's telling the church that as they hold to the same faith as Jesus, we should act as he did. We should love as he did. The sin of partiality or favoritism that James is addressing falls firmly on, under the umbrella of the love your neighbor as yourself, right? James is not making a request of the church, but rather instructs them to stop showing favoritism. And when the church shows favoritism to one person over another, it teaches the world, listen to this, when the church shows favoritism, it teaches the world that God does the same. When he says that we should not, in verse 1, let me go back and read it again, my brother and sister, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith. What he means by hold the faith, he's saying do not claim that you know Jesus and act other than he would. We'll talk about the results of that in a minute. James is not making this request. He's making an instruction. And it's, if, if we can't do that, if we show favoritism, if we show partiality, we are teaching a false theology to the world around us. Because as representatives of Christ, we are saying through our actions that this is how you're supposed to act. And this is a serious thing, and that's why James addresses it the way he does. Look, here's the thing. I'll be honest, at first thought, I felt like we got a pretty good handle on this right? That's a dangerous place to be. One of the things that I do every week as I study, as I prepare, one of my requests is that God would show me how this passage applies to me personally. I start there and then how he wants to apply it to our body. And usually I get two things, sometimes both, sometimes one or the other. Uh, but he shows me something that's happening that week. He speaks, uses that passage to speak to something that's happening in my life that week. Or he'll remind me of something from my past. And this week he brought up a story from my past that I'll be honest, I tried to forget this one because I'm, I'm really embarrassed about it, but I think it illustrates this point really well. It's certainly not one of the worst things I did growing up, but it's not one that I'm proud of. So today I want to tell you about the story about the boys in the blue jean jackets. So I was the same age as my boys is now. I was in eighth grade. Um, whenever I was growing up, you entered youth group at seventh grade. And as most of you guys know, those, those junior high years are pretty awkward ones, right? You're trying to figure out who you are and how you fit into the world. And my older sister grew up in the youth group, and um, all of these people that she hung out with were like my heroes. Like, I wanted to be like them. And so I'm finally in the youth group, just barely in there, only been there a year, but I'm finally there. And I'm trying to find my place in the world, okay? And one Sunday morning, these two guys, it's a set of twins, they show up, they're maybe my age, maybe a year older, 
Um, and I remember them very vividly because they both had on blue jean jackets. I know that like in the 80s, that was really popular. But in the, I guess this was the mid 90s, maybe not so much. Um, but they stood out to me because they were dressed weird, which really is saying a lot coming from me. Okay. That whole time period, I would wear like cowboy boots, Wranglers, and an Adidas t-shirt because I didn't know who the heck I was. Okay. I just want to point out how, I, how ironic that is. Okay. So Sunday night comes around, we had a Sunday night event, and these two guys show up to youth group. They were dressed weird, and I was really threatened by them as an eighth grade guy. You know, like, this is my territory. Who, why are y'all up in here trying to take over my space, right? That's what's going on in the eighth grade brain of Will, okay? And so we, we played a game, and as I've been thinking about this week, this is a terrible game, and I don't know why we ever played it. What was our youth leader thinking? But we played a game called Sardines, okay? Here's the premise of the game. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Sardines, Okay. Okay, all right, if you haven't heard of sardines, it's, it's hide-and-seek in reverse. And so here's what we do. We had a big church building, and they would turn off all the lights and instruct a set of teenagers to hide. And then everyone else would try to find them, but when you find them, you don't announce it, you hide with them. And by the end of the game, you're packed into a little closet or corner somewhere like a can of sardines, right? Hence the name. Okay, and so here's these two new guys. We explain the rules to everybody, and I'm getting to hide, and that's a big deal. Like, when you get to be the person that picks the hiding place, like, that's, and especially as an eighth grader, like, man, I got all the power. And so I hide in a really great little nook in the AC closet. I'm thinking nobody's going to find me, and, you know, they've been looking for about 15 minutes, and I'm just kind of giggling. I'm just excited about the fact that nobody's finding me. And in walk these two new guys, and they yell, I found him, he's in here was so mad. And so I made it my point that evening to make their lives miserable so they would never come back. And guess what? They didn't. Not proud of that moment. I'm I'm incredibly saddened by this story for two reasons. One, there was no reason for me to feel or act the way that I did toward these guys. They didn't do anything wrong. And two, this is not an uncommon experience For many that visit churches today, they're not dressed right or they don't participate right. Happens to students and adults alike. And in our passage today, James gives an adult version of the same story. And unfortunately, it's a sad reality that it still shows itself today and has throughout church history. Sometimes it's intentional, like mine was. I was very purposeful in my activity. But I would also go as far as to say as most of the time, it's a subconscious thing and we don't even realize we're doing it. And it comes from an internal value system that we've learned from the world over the course of our lives. Going back to James chapter 1 verse 27, he says, take care of people and don't become stained by the world. In church, we've grown up in a culture where it is normal and encouraged to put people to the side who don't look like us and who don't act like us. And I would venture to say my first reaction about our body is to say we got a pretty good handle on this. But the reality is what James is referring to is often not the things that we do and say out loud, it's the things that happen in our mind. And that's what needs to be addressed. All of us have the same struggle. If someone looks or acts different from us, We make judgments about who they are as a person. I was reminded on the way here this morning of another story. Not nearly as sad as this one, but we had a a teenager in our youth group many, many years ago 
whose dad to me always seemed really standoffish, like in an odd way. Um, and we were hanging out with him this week, and he told us a story about how his son used to make him drop him off on the other side of the church because his son didn't want people seeing his dad. And so for all these years, I've thought he was standoffish and didn't want to have anything to do with us. And the whole time, it was because his son was being a teenage boy and didn't want his dad around. But I made a judgment based on someone's activity, and I didn't have all the information. And I know that I am not alone in making judgments like that. All of us do that. And this is the very thing that James is speaking against. We look at a person and immediately accept or reject them based on nothing more than what we can see or the immediate data that's in front of us. One of my commentaries said this. He said, the world's love shows its true nature in its lack of love for many who suffer under desperate circumstances. Just as James earlier demonstrated the incompatibility of double-mindedness in prayer, here he showed the impossibility of combining faith and the approval of the world. The incompatibility or the impossibility of combining true faith with the approval of the world. What James is talking about in church, verse 27 when he warns the church to keep itself unstained is this very thing. As I said a moment ago, a lot of times this struggle that we experience is something that happens only in our mind. We usually don't voice those things out loud, but that doesn't make them any less real. This is why it's so important that we let God reveal and deal with those sins in our lives. As we examine our own lives, as we consider how we have treated others, we must begin to see the vast difference between how Jesus sees the people in our lives and how we see the people in our lives. At the beginning of today, I talked about how true faith reveals itself and so does the lack of faith. Here's what I want you to put, the pieces I want you to put together today is that how you think of people that aren't like you is telling about where your heart and your faith is. I'm not talking just about what you say out loud, although that is important. I'm talking about what happens in your mind and in your heart. We need Jesus to work in our hearts to grow our faith until we see the people around us the way that he does. In verse 1, James gives Jesus a title that we don't see anywhere else in scripture and I love today I don't know if this was intentional or if it was just the Holy Spirit but James describes Jesus as the glorious Lord Jesus Christ and glory was all over our songs today one of my commentaries points out that James gives such a great title to Jesus and then he reprimands the church for giving his glory listen to this for giving his glory to the people that they wish to please He's saying that by showing favoritism to some, we are giving away Jesus' glory to those people. We're putting them in the place of honor instead of Christ. We are saying to that person and to the others in the room and to Jesus that this person that we are favoritizing, uh, making our favorite person, is more important than Jesus is himself. Jesus said that we are to love God and to love our neighbor, but when we show favoritism, we are making that person our God, little g. We are elevating them to a status that they were not created to hold. And that destroys their view of themselves, the church's view of them, and the perceived value of those that we are rejecting in order to favoritism, in order to make them our favorites. James is saying this in as stark of way as possible. 
If you're going to do that, don't do it while proclaiming the name of Jesus. That's what he's saying in verse 1. In doing so, you're defaming the name of Jesus and raising up the name of another. And we're destroying the testimony of the church and of people's understanding of God. As I was thinking through the implications of this sin, God showed me why he had formed our church the way that he did. The, the gathering place west, or the gathering place in general. This destruction of partiality is so important that God had us form our church when we started it in a very specific way to be elder-led. You've seen it, I've seen it, when men are given power in the body because they have deep pockets or loud voices, right? And they become the ones who are leading the church, not chasing after the Holy Spirit, not trying to figure out what God wants them to do, but pleasing themselves. And rather than the gospel of Jesus being front and center, their desires and their egos are. The church was not intended to be ruled by the rich or the popular, but by the Holy Spirit. But rather than pointing fingers at those in our past, we need to examine our own lives. Have we placed more value on pleasing someone than on serving God? Ask God this week to reveal the areas in your life where you have shown favoritism. And you may be surprised by what he says. It's after 12 o'clock. Somebody's calling me. I'm sorry. But most of us have been born and raised in the South. And there are things buried deep in us that God needs to deal with. And this is the week for that. To ask God to show you those things and work those things out of you. Don't be like eighth grade Will. Okay? Don't be like me. Don't judge others based on their outward appearance or because they don't understand the structure of your life. As we grow in our faith, God's goal is to, grow, to, is to grow us into a body of believers in a diverse culture, in, in an economic status that's diverse, races that are diverse, and life experiences that are diverse. As we grow in our faith and understanding, God's goal is going to be to grow into a body of believers that is as diverse as the kingdom is. There's a song that Maverick City came out with recently called Kingdom and I love it. I've been listening to it a lot. And I want you to listen to these lyrics, lyrics out of one of the verses. It says, and if you ever wondered what heaven looks like, it's looking like me and you. And if you ever question what heaven sounds like, just let it fill the room. And that's a very diverse group of people that are in that, in that band. The kingdom of God is filled with people that don't look like us, that don't sound like us, that don't talk like us, that don't think like us. And we need to let God teach us to embrace that diversity. As we do, as our, as our faith grows, we're going to discover the beauty of God's creation, that he purposely created us different with different life experiences. And when we can join those things together, we're going to see God in a way that we cannot see him on our own. One of my favorite and most influential friendships that I have right now is with a guy named Pastor Roger Green, who's the pastor at Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church. The first time we sat down and had lunch together, I was blown away by the similarities in our stories and yet how different they were. But it has been such a blessing to get to know a man of God who works in a community very similar to mine whose life experiences are vastly different. I'm getting to see God in a way that I couldn't see him before because I embraced somebody that was different from me. I don't want you to think I'm the hero here. I'm not. But what I am saying is God wants all of us to have those kind of relationships, to purposely build relationships with people that are not like us and let God work in that. 
as we embrace those that are different from us, we're going to be blessed by the love and the beauty that is found in those people. God wants to work in your personal life to reveal his kingdom. But in order to do that, he's got to deal with the way that we look at people and the way we judge them. So, God wants to push you. He wants to challenge your faith. And he wants it to develop into a true faith that's going to reveal itself to the world around you. That faith's going to change your life. It's going to change my life. It's going to change this body. And I cannot wait to see what that looks like. Let's pray. God, I thank you for such a challenging message today. Lord, I ask that as we are, are going through the rest of this day and this week, God, that you would point out the areas, the places, the people in our lives that we have prematurely judged. God, I ask that you would work in our hearts that when we meet somebody that sounds different, that looks different, that talks different, that acts different, that God, that you wouldn't immediately cause us, or that we wouldn't cause ourselves to immediately judge, Father, but we would be drawn to those people to understand them, to learn from them, to love them as you do. Jesus, this is a strong challenge, and it's going to require us to be dependent on you. Father, I ask that this week that you would give us that dependence, that you would give us those desires. It's in your name we pray. Amen.